0: we're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation.
1: Science, logic, reason. Do
0: you have any hard
1: data? Now, that's what I call science. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you independent and, we hope, interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content from Tasmania. The show is proudly supported and recorded by EDGE Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Kelsey Picard and our special guest, Matthew Fielding. So we are all Young Tassie Scientist alumni, and I'm really excited to actually have a chance in studio to talk to grown-ups about our work because <laughs> usually we're delivering talks to children. And it's a little bit different, but I also feel like every single time I've listened to both of your talks, I've learned something, <laughs> which is awesome. So we're in studio today to talk specifically about Matt's work. Now, Matt, you are a um, bird nerd. What's the technical term for a bird nerd?
0: <laughs> the technical term for a bird... Well, a bird nerd, the technical term is a twitcher. Oh, really? Yeah. That's just someone who goes out and like likes to watch birds and tick all the birds off their list. But the b- name for a bird scientist is an ornithologist.
1: Ornithologist. So what are your, the main species of interest in your research?
0: Sure. So there's probably two kind of main species I focus on. One is the forest raven, or as everyone calls them in Tasmania, the crow. <laughs> um, I'm sure everyone knows what they are. And the other one I study is the emu.
1: The emu. So there are no emus in Tasmania?
0: No, there are no longer no emus in Tasmania. There once was.
1: Teaser. Are they related? I'm assuming Uh, they are. Yeah,
0: the Tasmanian one was a subspecies of the mainland emu.
1: Okay, cool. And how far into your PhD are you?
0: About a year and a half.
1: Cool. And then, so when you were in like your undergraduate, did you start off doing like general sciences or zoology or something and then decide to specialise in birds or was it that you knew early on that you were very passionate about birds?
0: No, so I wasn't I wasn't a bird nerd until second year of uni. So I started off just doing a general zoology uh, degree just because I liked animals. I was a vegetarian, so I was like, oh, I'll do, <laughs> <laughs> just I'll do sense. animal science. <laughs> I don't really know. And then, yeah, second year we did a um, bird watching project. Um, I knew nothing about birds really then. I didn't knew, knew a few of them. I probably called forest ravens crows back then. <laughs> um, And then I just, yeah, fell in love with it and just kept following that path. And then slowly more and more became more nerdier and nerdier about birds.
1: That's interesting. So what was it that you loved about it? Like, is it that you like so for our listeners I think one of the most enjoyable science communication experience I've had was when we went to the west coast we went on this like short little walk from our accommodation and I swear to god listeners we could not get five steps without Either Kelsey or Matt stopping and being like, oh, look at this wonderful piece of nature. But then not only would they be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty great. They would be like, oh, but what is it? And how do we figure it out? And then collectively they would merge their sciences and be able to like, you know, pretty much figure out what most of the stuff we were looking at was. And as a medical scientist, this was like completely alien to me. And I was like, huh? (laughs) So it was very, very cool. So was it when you in second year when you went and you did probably a field trip, was it the whole bird watching and how interesting that is? Yeah, I think it, it
0: comes back to, similarly to what you said, like going out and walking around and being able to identify things and work out what things are and just paying attention to things that you don't usually pay attention to. Like I would used to go for walks in the bush and I wouldn't notice bird to calls, And if I go to walks with my friends, they won't hear anything. And I'll be like, did you hear that? And they'll be like, no, I didn't hear anything. And I was like, that oh, was a... Um, Grey Shrike Thrush, please. Yes. Anyway, How did not know that? Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think that was the, the thing, just wanting to – or just enjoying the process of going out and just knowing what I'm listening to, I guess.
1: That's pretty cool. So, Kelsey, you're a plant geneticist. Mm-hmm. And it was – well, we've talked about your um, – experience of getting into stem do you find it similar that when you're out and about because you're very into plants and when we were stopping like every few minutes you were like and tracing back how we could like figure out what type of plant species it was too is it much the same for you in terms of studying the natural sciences
2: it is and I sort of started out the same way going and doing field trips where we would go and identify different plants out in the bush and just having the knowledge to then key out a different species and figure out exactly what it is just by the physiology I mean I don't listen to plants like Matt listens to birds <laughs> um but yeah I find that super fun um and then yeah just being out in nature becomes more interesting
1: yeah that is true I think I learned heaps when I went on a walk with you guys whereas usually I'm just like walking along be like doo, doo, doo. ooh, that's a pretty view <laughs> <laughs> whereas like I said to my partner it's like you and I we need to like learn some things so that every day can be a learning day yeah. <laughs> when we go for a walk so Matt are you looking at um, forest ravens does it bug you when people call them crows?
0: a little bit but mostly because people call them crows uh, in an effort to annoy me basically. Ah, okay. so yeah.
1: so now you've brought this on yourself yeah, and you're like they're not actually crows yeah. can I
2: but just ask what is the difference between a raven and a crow? Uh,
0: good, good it, question. that is a good question it depends on where you are so because there are ravens and crows across most of the world Um But in Australia, we have both ravens and crows. Uh, We have five species of corvids, three ravens, two crows. Is that right? That's right. Um, And the difference in Australian um, corvids – I should say what corvids means. Corvids is all the crows and the ravens, just so I don't – before I keep going. So So does that just mean like a blackbird?
2: Or is it it the
0: family or the genus or – It is –
2: Okay, it's the family.
0: Corvidae is the family. Corvus is the genus, which are the ravens and the crows. Okay, Um, And the ravens are just a little bit bigger, basically, here. That's the only real determining factor. If you saw the two of them next to each other, I doubt you'd be able to say which one's which.
1: Doesn't they have slightly different eyes or something?
0: Not the ones in Australia.
1: Oh, really? How do you tell them apart, then?
0: Um, There's a few ways between the different species. It's either the coals are all quite different kind of. <laughs> some are higher, some are lower. Um, some of them have bigger beards, which is like the um, the um, throat hackles, we call them. So the um, forest raven has quite a big beard. Um, some of them have longer tails, some are skinnier, some are longer. They're just, there's tiny little differences.
1: That's very interesting. So if they're quite distinct, could we maybe listen to some calls and see what they're like so
0: sure but the only thing is only in tasmania there's only forest ravens
1: in tasmania there's only forest ravens oh, okay so every time i've seen a crow here it, it hasn't <laughs> been a crow oh i'm sorry ravens it's
0: <laughs> been a forest raven every single time i'm
1: i'm sorry forest ravens i will there are
0: carawongs as well which people get mixed up so i do
1: remember you teach mm. carawongs but don't they have like a little bit of white
0: yep they're the other ones with a little bit of white and the big they're I with the yellow, Yeah, they're like the, one, <laughs> the ones with the yellow eyes. That's what you were talking yes, about. Yes, so that's okay. why it's like,
1: there's a, difference. <laughs> there's a difference. Okay, cool. So um, do you find that people get currawongs and ravens mixed up here then?
0: Yeah, quite often people say that's a raven. Um, most, A fair few people know, um, but the currawongs are more closely related to magpies and butcher birds.
1: Oh, that kind of, I don't know what a butcher bird is.
0: It's like a magpie. It's smaller, small, fat. <laughs> Magpie thing.
1: Cool. Um, so do kowangs and ravens have quite similar calls as well, or are they quite different?
0: No, their calls are quite different.
1: Can you talk about like is it species different? So I would imagine if somebody has like a really big beard and you're saying that's one of the distinctive features, does that make them have like a deeper call or something? Or is that kind of not really related?
0: Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's actually related, but it is kind of true because the forest raven does have the the deepest call and it does have the biggest beard I believe so
1: interesting anyway (laughs) you're listening to that's what I call science we are having a very conversational chat about all things birds with local bird nerd Matthew Fielding join us in just a second we'll be talking in a bit more detail about his work You are listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined in studio with Matthew Fielding and Kelsey Pickard. So you were saying there that um, birds, you can particularly tell them apart by their bird call. Yep. Yep. I was about to say sound. Um, So do you have any examples and could you talk us through how you tell the differences?
0: Um, Sure. Okay. So the three birds that people often would get um, mixed up is the ravens and the currawongs. So there's two currawongs in Tasmania. Oh. Um, but they all have very different calls. Um, so the forest raven has that deep kind of core, like...
1: Not going to demo for us. <laughs> 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 cool. Uh, it
0: sounds like this. Um, and then there's uh, a black carawong and a grey carawong. So the grey carawong is what we call the clinking carawong, and that's found on the mainland as well. And it sounds like this. You see how it's got that kind of clinking kind of noise? Oh, yeah. Clink, 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 kind of. And then we have um, the Black Carawong, which is only found in Tasmania. It's endemic to Tasmania. So that means it's only found here. Um, And that's the one you kind of see when you go up to Cradle Mountain or you go up into the mountains like Mount Wellington. You'll often hear this. So it sounds like this.
1: So... You only hear that when you're up in the mountains.
0: No, you often hear. It. Okay, Karawongs do some uh, <laughs> something called altitudinal migration. Whereas they, uh, in the summer months, they'll go up to the mountains um, because it's warm up there and there's berries fruiting, so they will eat all the berries. Um, whereas in the winter, they'll come down to low altitudes because it's too cold up high.
1: Okay, so I was about to ask you why they're endemic to Tasmania. Why they don't just go somewhere warmer when it's cold here? But that explains it.
0: Yeah, and it's of, of the Bass Strait's a pretty, pretty rough uh, thing to cross.
2: Yeah, probably. Are they quite small?
0: No, they're quite big, about the same size as a raven. So,
2: so currawongs eat berries and fruit and things, but yep. ravens are scavengers. They eat meat?
0: Ravens, they're both kind of omnivorous, so they both eat. Um, it's because uh, currawongs will eat insects, uh, fruit, and such. But ravens will also eat the same, but they also eat bro-kill, Okay. meat, predate on other birds, that kind of stuff.
1: Interesting. So, would things like ravens, do you look at roadkill in ravens as part of your work?
0: Yeah, sure. So, I'm looking at the ravens on the Bass Strait Islands, actually, Um, so King and Flinders Island, and I'm looking at uh, what they're using, what resources they're using over there, and one of those resources, obviously, is roadkill.
2: Is there a large population of ravens on these islands?
0: Yeah, sure. So, uh, King Island, uh, the ravens on that island have actually kind of, the populations have kind of gone through the roof recently, Um, farmers. Said back in the 50s there weren't any ravens there, which is crazy, and now you can't go anywhere without seeing them. There's hundreds and hundreds. Wow. So they're basically taking over the island.
1: Does that have a downstream effect on other bird species on the island?
0: Yeah, so that's what I, one of the things I'm looking at. So um, King Island actually have their own endemic subspecies of that black currawong we were talking about before, um, and their populations have gone like absolutely plummeted. Um, when I do surveys, I only see about fifty birds in a whole week, whereas ravens I see thousands. Um, and one of the reasons we think the Karabong populations are declining so badly is because the forest ravens are out competing with them.
1: Oh wow. So when you, you have to go over to the Bastard Islands obviously to collect your data. Yeah. So do you observe the different types of um, species that are there? And would you, like do you also observe like what kind of food they're eating? Like talk me through what your data collection looks like.
0: So I've got a whole bunch of sites uh, spread out across the islands and I'll go to um, regular surveys multiple times at these sites to see um, what birds are there. And these sites are in different habitats, so farmland or uh, forest or scrub. Um, and I'm just looking at what bird different birds are using different habitats, uh, specifically focusing on the forest ravens. But while I'm also there, I'm also doing these surveys along roadsides for um roadkill and raven observations. So looking at if the ravens are using these roadkill more than, say, just not using the roadkill.
1: <laughs> and why would we want to know if ravens are using the roadkill?
0: Um, Because roadkill is such a serious problem in Tasmania, we've been called the roadkill capital of Australia or even the world sometimes. Um, That means the ravens have an abundance of food. So the more food they have, the more they can grow and they can, you know, Populate the uh, um, areas, and so the problem is if we have more ravens, there's carry-on effects because it's, they can um, pr- prey on other birds, and um, they have a lot of problems for farmers as well.
1: So content warning: what do they mm. do to the
0: farms? Okay, so they um, this is not a content warning, but they will you know go to orchards and go to crops and stuff and eat all the food. But another thing they also do is they're a problem for stock because they will often uh, attack young lambs or young. Uh, calves, and unlike wedgetails who will just pick up a lamb and take it off and kill it quite quickly, the ravens are quite slow in their attack, and they will target the eyes or other soft bits of the lamb.
1: Yucky, that's not very pleasant
0: no. at all. So they're quite a problem when they're in quite high abundance.
1: Why is roadkill such a problem in Tasmania?
0: That is a good question. Um, there's a number of reasons we can kind of hypothesise, and that's the abundance of animals we have in Tasmania, but also the, the abundance of forests we still have. Um, and we have a lot of kind of forest-bordering farmland, and so the um, animals like paddy melons and wallabies will cross the road from the forest during the night to go eat all the you know wonderful grass that's in the farmland, and then in that process they get hit quite often.
1: Okay. Leading on from that, there's obviously roadkill across the state. You mm. are one man. Trying to find out what the relationship between roadkill and ravens, um, is and the implications of that. Is there a role for citizen science here? Because I swear, almost every day that I go into work, I see a raven having a little chomp on some roadkill. Um, has there? Do you, are you aware of any role of citizen science in like the roadkill space or raven diet space?
0: Well, there is a roadkill app, which um, um which allows citizens to report roadkill. Across I did not know Tasmania, about. maybe even Australia. I think it might be just Tasmania. Um, obviously, they're not going to be recording raven observations either. But um, I mean, that could be something that could be extended to mm. look into that. What
2: is the purpose of that app? Are they trying to? Um, I
0: think they're trying to identify hotspots. spots
2: oh, right. So
0: then they know where to, um, you know, put those virtual fences. I don't know if you guys have seen those.
1: Are those the ones like when you drive in from Humanville and they kind of like light up and I think they're making noise? Yeah. They're very cool, yeah, but a little bit deceiving when you don't know what they are.
0: Yeah, I know they're <laughs> distracting, aren't they? These um, poles, green poles, you might have seen them alongside roads. Huonville have them um, out the eastern shore. Have them um, eastern east coast has them quite a bit. But basically, they when a car's coming along, they'll pick up the uh, signal from the headlights, I believe, and then they will uh, emit a high frequency noise that scares the. Um, wildlife away and off it's, the road
1: it's pretty interesting that that sound would scare the animal more than just the headlights from the car but i suppose maybe the sound does it as like a preemptive warning so that yeah like if they're so behind it's before
0: then, kind of they even get there really
1: whereas the lights could probably be quite discombobulating because mm. i know if i'm walking towards bright headlights at night i do not find it very easy to know which way i should go <laughs> um so that's really fascinating in just a moment we're going to be talking to matt about his work on emus and getting into maybe some of the future implications of that of like how we can plan the future by looking towards the past <laughs> You are listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman and I'm joined in studio with Matthew Fielding and Kelsey Pickard. We've been picking Matt's brain about all things birds. And uh, Kelsey, weren't you
2: just about to ask Matt about his emu research? Yeah, so you've been studying emus that used to be on Tasmania, but by studying the emus that are living on the mainland. Is that right?
0: Yep, that's right. So, yeah, we used to have emus here in Tasmania um, until Europeans came and um, colonised, of course. Um, so, so they went extinct in
2: 1850. Well, and they
0: ate them all? Yeah, well, so there's a few... We're not yet completely sure exactly how they went extinct, but it would have been a lot of hunting by Europeans, hunting by the dogs that they brought. Um other species, like rats, might have eaten the eggs. So there's a whole bunch of um, theories, but we're not entirely sure. All we know is they are no longer here, basically.
1: Were they eaten? Like, are there any records of them being eaten? They were
0: definitely eaten. Um, a lot of sealers would have eaten them of um, the northeast coast and such. And there was another emu that was on King Island as well, which is um, which was even smaller than the mainland emu. Um,
1: so what's the size difference between the mainland emu and the extinct Tasmanian emu?
0: Um, so the mainland emu, on average, is about 180 centimetres. So average height, of, you know. Um, and then the Tasmanian emu was thought to be smaller, but now we're thinking maybe it's not so not so true. So there's a, a real lack of um, records of the Tasmanian emu. There's a few skins that are in, in museums over in Europe, but otherwise we're not too sure. Um, the King Island emu which is another subspecies, Um, we know it was actually a dwarf species, though. And that was stood at about 80 centimetres tall.
1: How do you know that it was a a subspecies and that it was so small?
0: Um, So the subspecies, people have done genetic studies on it. Um, And the reason we know so much about the Island emu is because there's so much fossil evidence. Uh. Um, Because there's a lot of sand dunes over there, there's lots of sub-fossils of the emu. And so we have a lot of bones and we know exactly...
1: That's helpful. That's wild because it's not actually that long ago that it sounds like they went extinct, but we actually don't have many records of them.
0: Yeah. I think one of the big problems they had was they started bringing over mainland emus to Tasmania and then they kind of got, you know, which one's which kind of thing.
1: So they brought mainland emus here, but there aren't any emus
2: here anymore.
0: No. So there was a lot of farming and stuff like that.
2: Obviously, there are no emus here in Tasmania to study anymore. So you're going over to the mainland to Wilson's Prom and studying the emus there?
0: Yeah, so we're going over to Wilson's Prom to find out more about our emus here. And the idea about that is um, basically Wilson's Prom is very similar vegetation to Tasmania. So what the emus are eating there, we can say or infer that the emus what we used to have here in Tasmania might have eaten the same kind of thing.
2: So you're interested in what niche the emus were filling in Tasmania, that they're not anymore? Is that the question?
0: Yeah, so emus um, play a whole bunch of important roles in the ecosystem. And one of the most important things they do is seed dispersal because they basically eat anything, they travel kilometres in a day, and then they poop it out. Mm. Uh, And they have a really long gut retention time as well, so they kind of hold things in for quite a while. Um, And when they poop it out, they have all these seeds in there because they eat all these fruit, and they um, basically have this beautiful substrate to grow in. And so with the loss of the Tasmanian emu that might not be happening anymore here.
1: So have you, can you like observe any declines in vegetation variation, uh, you know, that we would expect to see where you are studying the emus because of this lack of seed dispersal that they may, like is there kind of some observational stuff that's driving this hypothesis that they play a vital role that's no longer being filled here in Tasmania?
0: Um. Yes and no. I guess the, we started off by thinking about the Tasmanian emu and thinking about how important large herbivores are in the environment and how Tasmania you know lacking them really now. Um, most of the forested kangaroos are gone now from similar uh, similar events as the emu. Um, and it kind of made us think, oh, well, what plants are going to be suffering now? And especially plants, what plants are going to be suffering in the future as climate continues to change because plants need to move um, with the changing climatic conditions. And if they don't have a way to move, like an emu, then they're they're not going to do so well. Um, And so I guess we are thinking what plants are they eating and then comparing that to plants in Tasmania and looking at what plants are actually struggling. So there's one species that we know um, called Solanum opicum. Sorry, any botanists out there because I would have totally stuffed that up. (laughs) But um, it's a kangaroo apple. And um, we've seen emus eating it on Wilson's prom. And it's widespread across Victoria, but its uh, distribution in Tasmania is actually declining. It's oh. you know, becoming threatened, um, and we hypothesise that that's to do with the emu. I don't know how many people know much about kangaroo apples, but they're like this kind of orange, droopy kind of berry fruit thing. Um, and basically we found a, a whole fruit that was completely whole, like it was, had not been chewed up at all. And just going through the emu. Didn't the even touch side. the
1: sides. No. <laughs> I'm amazed by that because also I went to Mariah Island recently and yeah. with a bunch of friends. And I, for the two day trip, my friend was trying to convince me that a forest kangaroo was in fact a forest kangaroo, not just a big wallaby. And I was just like, no, there are no kangaroos in Tasmania anymore. Like that's, you're lying to me.
0: Mm.
1: <laughs> and then by the end, I actually saw them really up close and I was like, oh wow, no, that's not a wallaby. Yeah, so huge. That's a really interesting that, you know, potentially these species are playing big roles in ecosystems that they no longer can. And it mm. might take us a long time to feel the effects of that. But in climate change, it's really important. So where do you see kind of the future of your work going with
0: this EMU research? Well, I mean, we have talked about this a bit, um, but it is kind of it's hypothetical, I guess, but it's also we want people to start thinking about it, and that is, can we bring the emu back? Should we bring the emi back? You know, um, to back, Tasmania. Bring it back to Tasmania, yeah. Um, if we're finding that we're missing an important ecological role, like there's, the ecosystem's struggling because we haven't got this species in there, maybe we should start thinking about it. Well, and I t- mean, like, we're not going to just get a whole bunch of emus and chuck them in the environment. It has to be like a, a, a really well-thought-out process, but it's something that people, I think, need to start thinking about.
1: Well, we do that in other ways. We like preserve um, populations of the devil that don't have the facial tumour mm. um, in different ways. So there are other ways, and also it's kind of our fault that they're gone, isn't it? Mm. Um, so what would be some of the negative implications or some of the hesitancies of introducing emus to Tasmania again?
0: Yeah, sure. So there's always there's always going to be some negatives. And we've got to think about those, especially as we've changed the environment so much since they've left. Um, so we've got to make sure that they're not going to impact farms. Um, I don't know if you guys know much about the 1920 emu war. Basically, in 19, the 1920s, the Australian government declared war on emus that were uh, coming down in mass uh, in the wheat belt in WA and basically destroying crops. And there's a video, a YouTube video of the army firing upon these emus, but the emus ended up winning because the emus just ran away as soon as you know they started shooting. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, there's that. that, That's a big worry about the impact of um, on farms. I guess the thing is, this is a very different environment to the WA. So there's um, probably, I think, less impact they will have on. The farms down here,
1: because they would have more available food that they would eat, yeah. so then they wouldn't go finding it out of people's exactly. crops. Very interesting. Well, I think that's all we've got time for now, Matt. Thank you for joining us and for filling us in on all of these interesting bird facts. Thanks, Kelsey, as well for joining me today. Thanks. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name's Neve Chapman. I was joined by Kelsey Pickard and Matthew Fielding. Please look us up on social media or any of your, wherever you get your podcast and like and subscribe subscribe particularly in these tough times it really helps us grow our audience and if you've got any content suggestions feel free to flick them our way big shout out to meredith castles and olivia holloway for all your help behind the scenes and as always thank you to edge radio for supporting us it's where we record and we're very proud to be part of hobart's premium youth station thank you and goodbye